All right, folks, here we have part two of our discussion with Habib Suor about right heart failure and the savior algorithm. Let's get into it. Is it fair to say that this is a, a collection of kind of sound principles, all of which has their own basis, but the protocol itself is not so much evidence-based? I mean, has anyone studied this in an outcome sense? That's correct. And, uh, and what ideally what we would do is we would um, start using this and comparing it, comparing outcomes with this compared to, uh, to otherwise. We have a case series. Um, we have lots of case reports, uh, you know, uh, patient-based, uh, single patient-based things. Um, but unfortunately, you know, uh, with these, with patients like this, it would take a lot of them, uh, you know, to, to prove benefit and outcome. And there are lots of other uh, aspects involved. Most of these patients, as you might imagine, are ridiculously sick. Uh, and so, you know, trying to see whether this actually makes a difference in their overall outcome um, is absolutely up in the air. I don't think that, you know, anyone can say for sure uh, that if we get them to survive intubation, that they're necessarily going to survive any better uh, after the fact, after all of that is said and done. Uh, it's just, uh, it's designed to be something that you can use in the case of a known physiologically difficult airway to try to minimize the cases, hopefully, that we can save, where the problem is something that is time-limited, it's self-limited, uh, or it can be treated to get them back to a situation where it's no longer an issue. Okay, so you, you're at this point where this guy is really struggling to breathe. Um, you had mentioned the, you were less concerned because his bicarb was still decent. Um, what would prompt you at this point to go ahead and intubate him? So there are a few things, uh, you know, all of the standard um, indications for intubation obviously apply, but if, uh, if this patient is still uh, with it enough, um, then I would talk to them about what I would plan to do for him. And in this case, I would plan to follow uh, the savior algorithm. And in, uh, what that means is uh, I would want to topicalize his airway uh, with uh, nebulized lidocaine, and I would want to do uh, an awake fiber optic intubation for him. Uh, so there are a few uh, variations here. If he is almost obtunded or to the point where he really, he just wants to uh, feel better than he does right now. But, you know, you, we've all encountered those patients that basically are just saying, help me. It doesn't matter what you do, just do something. You know, that's obviously a, a terrible circumstance for the patient to be in. Uh, but for in this situation, sometimes that's actually uh, kind of the best place. Uh, to catch a patient like this, uh, because you can uh, put some nebulized lidocaine on and get all your equipment ready uh, and get a breathing tube in uh, with much less uh, risk to the patient than would otherwise be the case. If you have someone who is at the situ in a situation where they're out of their mind, they're still very strong, they're fighting you, uh, it makes it a lot more difficult. Uh, but for the most part, uh, and actually for the entire part. I've never actually, uh, in the dozens and dozens of these that I've done, I've never had to give any of these patients any sedative medications. Um, and I should qualify that by saying it's not because I stand there and stare at them until they're obtunded. Uh, most of the most of the time, they're um, able to uh, participate. I'm, and the biggest part of it is 
talking to them and just letting them know these are my concerns. The best way and the safest way to uh, to take care of you is to make sure that you can still do your own breathing, that I don't have to chemically paralyze you uh, to put this breathing tube in, and that I can put the tube in uh, with you still having your protective reflexes intact and uh, you being able to tell me uh, and participate uh, in the in the process. And so I've found that universally so far, uh, when I explain the situation, you know, calmly to the patient, um, and I take all of the steps that we, you know, normally arrange for the uh, for the algorithm. Uh, the, the vast majority of the time, the patient, uh, you know, shakes my hand afterwards, uh, after the breathing tube is in, and they feel a whole heck of a lot better. Um, and in this case, uh, I would plan to exp I would explain that to the patient. I have a checklist that I print out and I hand to the uh, nurse and to the respiratory therapist uh, to get things ready. Uh, the patient already has high flow nasal cannula on, which is very, very helpful. Uh, I would uh, ask them to connect um, the uh, Valitri or whatever your choice of inhaled prostacyclin is uh, to that uh, and have it ready for the ventilator. Um, I would topicalize them with nebulized lidocaine. Um, I would have lidocaine ready in a slip tip syringe uh, for the scope. I would have a therapeutic scope. Um, and I would uh, attach um, a Parker Flex ET tube, uh, you know, put it over the scope. Uh, for those not familiar with the Parker Flex tube, the idea behind it uh, is that the, the bevel of the tube, the very tip where the Murphy's eye is, um, it's bent kind of inwards into the, you know, the, uh, uh, the void of the tube. Uh, rather than outwards, so that when you drive this tube over some introducing device, so a bougie or a scope, um, that tip isn't sticking out and won't uh, have as much of a chance to catch on the arytenoid cartilages or on the vocal cords. Uh, if you've never used one, I encourage you to try it next time you have to do a tube exchange or uh, an intubation like this one. Uh, but it, it slides much more easily, much less traumatically. Um, but I would have that loaded, um, and then I would uh, use what's called pneumodissection on the scope. Uh, so rather than attaching suction to the bronchoscope, uh, I would attach oxygen at uh, you know maximum flow. And that way, when you're doing your uh, bronchoscopy, uh, you're accomplishing two goals at once. You're using pneumodissection, so when you push the suction button, you're actually blowing uh, oxygen uh, in front of you, so it expands uh, you know, the orifice that's in front of you, it moves the tongue and other tissues kind of out of your way. Uh, it also serves to passively oxygenate while you're going down there. Um, and so I, I do that. And when I have a view of the cords, uh, I, you know, instill with the slip tip syringe, uh, another five cc's of 1% lidocaine, for example, and that those doses can vary. Uh, but I squ literally squirt that right at the cords. I tell the patient all of this as I'm doing it. I tell them that it's going to taste terrible in just a second. It's going to make them cough. Uh, I anchor my hand to the patient's jaw uh, so that when they cough, I don't lose my view, and then give them a second to settle. And once that's uh, happened, uh, go through the cords with the scope, introduce the ET tube, and then connect it to the uh, to the ventilator. And the, one of the critical points of the Savior algorithm is that when you connect it to the ventilator, it's got um, the uh, inhaled prostacyclin in line, 
the ventilator is set to zero over zero in pressure support with however much oxygen you think they're going to need. Uh, and then you slowly start titrating up the pressure and watch for the patient's hemodynamics to react. If the patient's tolerating it beautifully, then you can go up to whatever pressure support you need. Um, and the nice thing is the patient is still doing their own breathing. Uh, they're still participatory. The lung pump uh, function is still there. Um, and you can slowly offload the amount of effort that's required for them to continue breathing in this uh, circumstance. And so the, just to tell me if I have this right, the reason that you prefer to do these awake is one, to avoid the sudden loss of that lung pump so they continue breathing more from the hemodynamic perspective uh, than a respiratory one, and two, to avoid the defraying any of their kind of sympathetic tone with any sort of sedation, um, you know, with the concern that may impact the right heart as well. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. And uh, one other, you know, aspect of it is we had mentioned earlier with this patient uh, that I would start them on epinephrine. Uh, I would have all of those things in line. And if the patient uh, doesn't have a great blood pressure, I would be running all of those things. And there are all kinds of other parts to the algorithm uh, including, you know, considering things like milrinone, which is obviously a great choice if the patient has, uh, you know, a decent systemic blood pressure and functioning kidneys. Uh, thinking about things like uh, steroids, uh, since they have some synergy potentially with vasopressin, if you've got that running. Um, and then thinking about things like uh, uh, digoxin, if you're worried about uh, uh, SVT, uh, and considering that since digoxin can actually have a uh, an inotropic effect, that's you know one thing to consider, but also that it has uh, the potential to uh, cause ventricular dysrhythmias. So if you have someone who's already got ventricular dysrhythmias, I would probably avoid it. Um, and then one other aspect to consider is the administration of bicarb, which is a whole other discussion. Uh, but if you have a patient who's having trouble ventilating and they have an, an acidemia and there's a component of a metabolic acidosis, uh, you don't want to you know, hit these patients with a bunch of bicarb until you know that they're going to be able to ventilate it off. Uh, and so it's something to, to bear in mind, along with the idea of administering calcium if you're going to be giving them any bicarb. You know, it sounds like and we talked already about the right timing to intubate these people, but the more you talk about it, the more it sounds like that is really a, a difficult part because you don't want to intubate them for all the reasons of positive pressure you talked about. But at the same time, the process of intubating them, uh, you're going to do it awake, you have a lot of things to prepare. It really sounds like it should not be done in a crash manner. <laughs> so it sounds like waiting too long is you know, just as bad as doing it too early. So would you say that the right time is really when it's clear that it has to be done and then you know, no later than that? Yeah, and that's, uh, that's I, I hate to sound, uh, uh, to give an answer that kind of sounds like a cop-out, but the, as you say, the, the right time is the right time, and the biggest, comp the biggest uh, aspect of this uh, is preparation. And so if you have a patient like this, uh, whenever I do, I, I pull out these checklists, I hand them to the, the people involved, um, and I let them know, you know, when we get this blood gas back, it's going to give us information, uh, and if there's something that we can intervene with and fix, uh, great, but if he's just trending in the wrong direction, eventually we're going to need to do this. So we need to have all of this stuff ready uh, for that eventuality. Like if this patient, uh, if this patient's blood gas uh, came back, uh, you know, with more of a metabolic component to this, and we started started him on, you know, some components of the rule of eights, 
uh, and his dead space improved because his right heart was able to pump a little bit better and the next blood gas stabilized or got a little bit better, great. But if we start doing those things and he looks the same and maybe a little bit worse, uh, you know, that, that answers that question. Eventually, he's going to land at a spot where uh, you need to do something else to help him. Okay. And again, the these drips and these other kind of efforts to preserve the, you know, the cardiac output, you're really doing these prophylactically. You're not doing this just because the patient is already in shock. It's to prevent it from happening when you innovate? Correct. Yes. And um, part of it is to assess the patient. Part of this whole thing is to assess the patient's tone. Uh, you know, some of these patients, they show up to you, uh, you know, with a map of 90 or 100. Um, and it's in many cases it's because they're a vasculopath. You know, they have lead pipes. Uh, and having any cardiac output with any kind of stress, um, you know, gives them a ridiculous amount of tone. And those patients respond better to having something like milrinone started. But the problem is, you know, when you go to intubate these patients, uh, it, it could very quickly turn in the other direction where you no longer have, um, if you just think about the, the curve, the cardiac output curve, and you're sitting on the asymptote, you're sitting right where uh, the slope is very steep. And so a change in cardiac output of 10% might change your blood pressure 100%. And we've all seen these patients where um, you give them a little bit of medicine because they're a little hypertensive, then they fall down through the floor. And then you uh, wake them up a little bit by holding sedation, and they're up through the ceiling. Um, and you know these patients have a tendency to behave that way if they show up to you with good tone. A lot of times that actually can be more concerning than patients that don't have any tone. Is there any role for a PA catheter before you do something like intubation? So I would love to have, personally, I use PA catheters a lot. Uh, I grew up with them. Uh, one of our attendings uh, at UK um, probably knows more about the PA catheter than, than the inventors. <laughs> He's, uh, he does a um, PowerPoint presentation. Well, he used to do a PowerPoint presentation for the residents that uh, it was printed out. It was like six slides per page, front and back, and it was about as thick as uh, you know one of the the big tome anesthesia textbooks. Um, and so I have a lot of uh, exposure to PA catheters. I love them. Uh, I would love to have one in this patient, uh, but you have to balance balance that against uh, the risk of placing it in someone who's already an extremist. So I would not place one in this patient uh, ahead of intubation. I would certainly consider it after uh, uh, intubation if we still don't know exactly what's going on uh, or if our interventions aren't making things a whole lot better. Um, remembering also that if you have someone who's this uh, on edge from a cardiovascular standpoint and then you trigger a dysrhythmia uh, you know, with something like a swan, uh, you could be in a situation where you don't recover. I had a, a patient when I was a fellow um, who was transferred from, uh, I believe it was from Vanderbilt, uh, to where I was doing fellowship at WashU uh, at Barnes. And uh, it was a pre-lung transplant patient uh, who was re you know, rejected for lung transplant uh, at various other institutions and was getting checked uh, with us. And one of the issues was uh, the patient got flown uh, via fixed wing to us and when I saw the patient in the morning, um, the patient wanted to have a bowel movement. 
Like that's what they wanted. They said, I need to have a bowel movement. Uh, I looked at them and said, you know, just getting up and making that effort as you are right now, uh, there is a risk that you will die. Just having that, uh, you know, afterload pushing like that, um, having those changes in hemodynamics uh, could kill you. They said, I don't care. I need to do this. Uh, the patient's spouse was a few hours behind because they were driving. Um, it was one of those like during sign out early in the morning, uh, the patient got on the bedside commode um, and it was because the patient couldn't use a, you know, uh, a bedpan, uh, but got on the bedside commode, uh, pushed and coded. Uh, and we coded for about an hour and there is no getting these patients back uh, when they it, with right ventricular dysfunction, unfortunately, if it's because of, uh, you know, pulmonary circulation problems, the issue is if you lose a pulse, just recognizing what are the things that worsen your RV afterload. And there are things that we end up, you know, having to, we have to memorize them for boards and be able to rattle them off. Uh, but acidemia, hypoxemia, hypercarbia, uh, hypothermia, all of the things that if you're coding, those things are absolutely getting worse. <laughs> They're not getting better. And so if your problem all to, to begin with, the thing that led you to coding was because it was RV failure, uh, it's very difficult to recover from that. Um, and it was, it was a terrifying experience that I, I, you know, I had nightmares for about a week after that um, because I had to meet the patient's spouse you know, shortly thereafter when they arrived. And, and, you know, tell them what happened. Uh, but these patients and, and those kinds of experiences have uh, kind of helped shape how much I think about uh, these patients and how each decision uh, could have, you know, potentially catastrophic consequences. So I'm, I'm picturing myself right now, I'm putting, my, I'm putting myself in some of our listeners' shoes, and I can hear already somebody saying, this all sounds great if you're, you know, at a level one trauma center where you have in-house anesthesia, ICU attendings. Uh, I'm a nurse practitioner in a rural hospital and in the middle of the night, it's me and maybe a doc in the ED. Um, I've never awake intubated someone fiber optically before. First of all, how hard is it to do if I've never done it before? Is this something that I can just get the bronchoscope? I bronch people all the time, so I'm comfortable with the scope. But is it something that I can do uh, if I'm in this situation? And if not, what can I do to temporize this person until I can get them to somebody who can? And that's that's an excellent question. It's one of the things that even, even attendings who are anesthesiology uh, uh, trained, who, are, who have a background in anesthesiology, Unless you regularly do, uh, you know, awake fiber optic intubations, it's uh, it can be a daunting task. It's not necessarily a simple thing to do. What I would say is, number one, the nice thing about it is, if you aren't, if you don't give the patient much in the way of sedative, and like I said, I don't give them any sedative, but that's a personal thing. Um, you always have that safety net. You're not going to make the patient worse if you've topicalized. And if you're using oxygen to take a look, you know, worst case scenario, you just stop and you take another, uh, you know, pick another avenue. Um, 
There are others uh, who are part of the Savior uh, algorithm who actually prefer uh, to do a GlideScope intubation without uh, paralysis. So that is another choice, uh, and you can uh, topicalize and try with the GlideScope. Um, these, these are situations where when I have learners and I have patients who uh, probably don't need to be paralyzed in order to be intubated, I take the opportunity to let them uh, practice that. If it's not going to put the patient at risk, uh, if you've not intubated someone without paralytic, it's worthwhile to do it here and there so that you can see what the difference is and so that you can get, get good at it. Um, the big key point here is the paralytic. You can sedate them. The implications of sedation are, are what was mentioned earlier uh, for the hemodynamics. It obviously has an impact on the respiratory drive, uh, but most of our sedatives will clear pretty quickly if you're using, um, you know, if you're using something like uh, a little dose of Versed uh, or some Presidex or something like that, you can you can cut it off um, and have them recover. Uh, but that's those are two big points there. Uh, if you do bronch, uh, awake intubation is certainly more difficult than just doing a bronch. Uh, it is worthwhile to to try here and there. Um, but if you if that's just not an option, if it's not something that uh, you've done before, uh, I, my suggestion would be to just intubate like you'd normally intubate, but do your best to try to do it without paralytic at first. Uh, and if that's not going to work, if you can't take a look uh, after some sedative uh, without paralytic um, and see what you see, then you can paralyze. If you have succinylcholine, uh, you could do that. And after they recover, get them breathing again quickly. But the other components of the uh, algorithm are worthwhile to bear in mind. Uh, those are situations where I would definitely have in line things like epinephrine, vasopressin, dopamine, um, and where I would have emergency drugs ready to go, uh, and where I would have the uh, inhaled prostacycline in line in the ventilator if you have it available at your institution, because it will help mitigate some of the changes in dead space. Uh, when you put someone on the ventilator. Now, when you say it's okay to sedate these folks if you can avoid paralyzing them, um, I assume you want some pretty light sedation. Correct. Yeah, you want to keep it as as uh, keep it to a minimum because you want them to be able to continue their um, minute ventilation, and you also don't want to be in a situation where their systemic pressures drop further. Sure. So, what's your drug of choice then for that? So as I said, if I'm if I'm intubating someone in this situation, uh, I I don't use anything with the fiber optic. But if I'm using not fiber optic, so if I'm intubating with a laryngoscope, for example, uh, most of the time I end up using something like Versa. And one of the uh, and that's also controversial. And I would say unequivocally that many of the things here are not necessarily proven. Um, and so it's a situation where more data will hopefully be coming out. And as we look into this more and more, um, you know, things like using dopamine, uh, there are places in the country that, uh, that they don't even have it on formulary because there's so many people against it. Uh, but in the case of uh, intubation and what sedative to choose, uh, what I try to teach the, the learners in the anesthesiology world uh, is that you should always think about exactly what you're trying to accomplish with ex with what drug you're trying to give. So if you're anesthetizing someone, what do you need? You need them to not remember and you need them to not move. 
um, I don't care if you're hurting if you don't remember hurting. Like it, that's not a hundred percent true, but I say that to illustrate a point that I'm not going to give you a hundred mics of fentanyl to intubate you if I've already made you amnestic. There's no reason to do that just because. Now, if you're hypertensive, and I think it's because of uh, what we call laryngophedrine, so giving someone you know the laryngoscope, the metal uh, treatment, and that brings your blood pressure up. Okay, cool. It's a stimulus. I'm going to give something to mitigate the stimulus. But outside of that, fentanyl doesn't add anything to the situation if I've given you an amnestic and I've given you a paralytic. And so I tried to pick something that gets me what I need. In the case of Versed, you don't need very much to get amnesia. Now, it's not perfect, obviously. If you have a, you know, an 18-year-old woman who uh, you know, takes uh, uh, Xanax at home and uh, takes you know, something to help her sleep that's benzo-based, obviously, you're going to have a lot more trouble getting amnesia with uh, the Versed. But if you have someone who's a little on the older side, or who's critically ill like this patient, uh, you can get a good amount of amnesia from a relatively small dose uh, of Versed, one that won't necessarily impact them uh, as profoundly as something like propofol. Uh, and remember also with propofol, one of the things that uh, ends up being kind of mistaken when it comes to dosing, and I see this in the emergency room a lot, um, there's the this, this simple uh, acronym that we always uh, memorized called KPET, so ketamine, uh, propofol, atomidate, biopentol, and it's you know it's the dosing. So it's one, two, point three, and four per kilo uh, for those four things. the The problem with that is those doses are in isolation. So if I'm intubating someone and the only medicine that I'm giving them is propofol, then yes, the intubating dose is two per kilo. But that's because I'm using it to also keep them still. So if I'm using a paralytic. I don't need two per kilo of propofol. I don't need that much for amnesia. Uh, and so you can actually titrate those medications much differently if you just think about what it is that you're trying to accomplish with which medicine and how much is necessary to do that. When you talk about titrating up the pressure support and the PEEP from zero over zero, um, how, how do you go about that? Do you, do you do it sort of in tandem or is there one or the other that you go up on first or... I think it's entirely up to you, and uh, it's one of the reasons why I definitely want a real-time measure of systemic pressures, uh, because that's really going to be your only immediate metric. Um, basically, what you want to see is, is the left heart getting its preload, and is it able to, you know, is that enough to maintain a systemic blood pressure? Uh, so what I generally do uh, is just turn them both up to one, turn them both up to two, turn them both up to three, go up to five over five uh, fairly quickly uh, because you have added you know, airway resistance here by adding the ET tube um, and see what happens there. Uh, if you can get to eight over five or something like that uh, without you know, bad changes in hemodynamics um, within the first you know, 10 to 15 minutes, that would be ideal. And then you can titrate your uh, drips accordingly and minimize your FiO2 accordingly. Uh, based on, you know, if they're hopefully pulsatile at this stage, you can see what their pulse ox reads uh, and try to get them uh, down into the 80s for their saturation. And that does tend to match uh, some of the ARDS-related uh, things uh, as more and more people are recognizing that you don't really need all that much oxygen um, 
and I, you know, I hate to mention the current pandemic, but that's another situation where it's being shown potentially uh, that these patients, while they are uh, relatively hypoxemic, it's not not a situation that is in and of itself life threatening. Sure. And so normally, I think when we we think about titrating pressure support um, in a patient, you know, we we think about patients who are still uncomfortable or who are tachypneic or who are working really hard to breathe. Um, how do you balance that against this whole idea of the lung pump, right? Because if they're breathing really hard to maintain their cardiac output, um, is, is it just a matter of accommodating slowly that as I gradually give them more support, they accommodate to that versus the dramatic change in? Correct. Yes. Okay. As they're, you know, eventually uh, everything will re-equilibrate, right? You you have to develop a CVP that's high enough to continue to fill your right ventricle. Your right ventricle has to develop the outflow to get across the pulmonary circulation into the uh, LV. And if those things aren't allowed to happen, you can have a very sudden uh, drop-off in your LV preload, and that is ultimately what leads to pulselessness. Gotcha. Because, I mean, obviously part of the whole reason for intubation is the non-sustainable work of breathing that the patient's undergoing, right? That we're, we're going to need to take over for them at some point. Um, exactly. But but you're saying so slowly doing it as opposed to rapidly um, allows them to... Yeah, the nice thing with this is that you can do it rapidly because mm-hmm. you can undo it just as rapidly. The nice thing is here, you you haven't forced yourself if you've been able to intubate the patient without giving them, you know, much or any sedative, without paralyzing them. You can put them on eight over five in a minute, you know, within a minute, just go up pretty quickly in seconds and look and see. If you're doing that and they're very quickly dropping their maps, you know, control Z, you know, undo that and, right. and you can slowly come back up. All right. Well, thanks so much. This has been really great. Um, this is something I think folks should take a look at and familiarize themselves with, especially if you are in that, that position where this is not something you see frequently. Um, maybe like just the general principle of planning ahead, um, like you were talking about at the very beginning of the scenario, uh, apply that just sort of to your practice in general. Uh, plan ahead and sort of be thinking of this so that the next time this patient shows up in your ICU or your ED, uh, you're not scrambling and thinking, what do I do? But you, you've you already kind of made a plan. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Habib. Thank you so much for having me. And um, thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll see you next time.